9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am on a highway somewhere between Detroit, Michigan, and Ypsilanti, Michigan, because I will go to every extent to try to find the true stories for you out there in Nerdland. In Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, and we also have Joe Strincioni of the Plowshares Fund. And somewhere on the northern part, well, California, I guess. Jeff, where are you? Are you in California right now? I I am in Monterey, gazing at the ocean out my office window. Oh, there he goes. So soon into the podcast, he starts with the ocean. (laughs) Yeah, he starts to torture us with the ocean. We have Jeffrey Lewis, author of the 2020 Commission, um, a book about how things, you know, could go wrong with a country like, well, North Korea. And that's exactly what we're here to talk about today. The president of the United States as we record this, is on a plane heading off to a place he didn't want to go very much when he was a young man, Vietnam, to meet with Kim Jong-un to talk about a deal. Um, And, of course, the president wants to deal very badly, and Kim Jong-un, you know, he'll take a good deal if he sees it. We are going to approach this uh, story from three perspectives, um, uh, all of uh, each of our guests has a lot of uh, uh, experience, um, but knowing them as I do, I kind of view Joe Cerencioni as the more optimistic perspective on these things, and I view um, Jeffrey Lewis as a bit of a skeptical perspective, and of course, everybody out there in Deep State Radio Land knows Rosa Brooks is here for the apocalyptic perspective. <laughs> Why do you guys think that's, that's funny? That's not funny. Is the apocalypse is serious? That's funny. Yeah, she's very on brand with the apocalypse. So, but let's start on a plus note there, Joe. What sure. might happen? Happen uh, in Vietnam besides more love between those attractive lovebirds, Kim Jong Un and Donald Trump. What better place for a tryst than Hanoi? You know, it's the here. Yeah, no, beautiful. Here, here they go, romantic Vietnam. Uh, hey, now well, wait a minute. I went to Da Nang on my honeymoon. Uh, really, surfing? Yeah, <laughs> it was a beach south of Da Nang. There's, yeah, it was really. No, there's a, everybody knows China good. Beach. I, beautiful. I appreciated the Apocalypse Now reference, Joe. <laughs> okay, good. Oh, Apocalypse oh, Now, no, let's I go. see. Yeah, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Yeah, okay, go on. 
Okay, so, well, we might get a victory here, uh, even without the napalm smell. Uh, I actually see a little uptick in optimism about this. Uh, so many things could go wrong. We shouldn't get, get crazy about this. Maybe, I think there's a 40% chance of success. That's why there's, there's so many wild cards, including, of course, the President of the United States, including Kim Jong-un overplaying his hand, including senior administration officials who are trying to sabotage it already. There's tweets out today already saying that uh, C. Began, the chief negotiator, is getting out over his skis and has promised too much. So there's all kinds of things that could go wrong with this. But the table is set for an interim deal, not complete denuclearization. That's not going to happen you know, anytime in, in this administration, certainly not at this meeting, not normalization of relations. That's a process that we're going to have to maybe start. But there's something that could could start, and the deal is, is something like the North Koreans uh, decommission or shut down or destroy a significant part of their nuclear weapons um, foundation, most likely agreeing to close the plutonium production facility at Yongbyon. In exchange, the United States uh, uh, relaxes some sanctions, most likely the ones that would allow the North and South to uh, continue economic and cultural exchanges. That's what the president of South Korea wants. That's what uh, Chairman Kim, as we now call him, wants. And the two would agree to a peace declaration, de declaring an official end to the Korean War that uh, began some 70 years ago. Those are probably the three big issues. There's an outside chance you might get liaison offices established in, in both capitals. That would be good for communications, for avoiding miscalculations and misunderstandings. That's the kind of deal. If they'd got that, it would be a significant diplomatic victory. Wow. Jeff, that sounds fantastic. I think we should call the Nobel Committee. Uh, why should the president have to ask the Japanese to nominate him for the Nobel Prize when we could have Joe do it? Um, uh, so everything's great. And and I think, by the way, behind the scenes, uh, the president doesn't call Kim Jong Chairman Kim. I think he probably calls him my little love muffin. What do you think? <laughs> Come here, let me pinch those cheeks. Oh, you look delicious today. Yes. I oh, ah, the images. I mean, yeah. you know, I. Let, let me start by saying I am modestly optimistic, if only because of all the leaks that we're seeing. Um, you know, I mean, there is at one level some good news, which is Bolton seems upset. So we, we saw that story in Politico and, and now there's a story in Fox about how angry everyone is um, about how much Began has given away. Uh, and I, I suspect that's a sign that maybe they have made some progress and, and people think that, you know, that the president is uh, going to come out of this with something. I think the place that I... The, the thing that gives me pause in all of this is, you know, I am I support engaging with North Korea, but Kim is not given up the weapons. And so what I what I worry about is, you know, I, they're going to come up with a deal. And, and I do think Kim, it, it's possible he will make a gesture like closing Yongbyon, which frankly would be great. Um, but it doesn't actually stop them from stockpiling weapons. And so what you're going to have is I think Trump will declare this as an enormous victory. 
Um, and then, you know, there's going to be an attack on that. And that attack, I think, is going to come from both inside the administration, but I, I also think it'll probably come from Democrats. And so what, the only thing I'm yeah. worried about here, but which I do worry about, is if this really comes down to the president continuing to promise North Korea's disarmament and then lying about it, that's better than 2017, but it is not sustainable, right? It'll fall apart uh, sooner or later, and, and then I worry that we're kind of worse off. So I, you know, I think we might get something, and I, you know, like I'm happy to, with Trump, just keep playing the clock out uh, until he disappears, but I do worry that we are actually squandering this opportunity to put in place like a proper settlement of things. Well, Rosa, I mean, I hardly know where to start. I'm sure all of this optimism is making you a little uncomfortable, but let's, let's, let's take it apart in a way that makes some sense. Let's start with Jeff's last point, um, where he said the president might lie about it. The odds that the president lies about the outcome of this, are, how, would, how would you estimate them? I think the odds that the president lies are quite high. I think the only challenge here is is you know, when the president utters a mistruth that he is incapable of comprehending as a mistruth, do we count that as a lie or do we count that as as a piece of idiocy? And that it's often very hard to tell. Uh, I, I, I do think that Trump engages in a, a sort of a combination of wishful thinking uh, and outright lying. And often it's hard to know the difference. So so no question about it, no matter what happens. He's going to come out of this uh, saying great victory, wonderful progress. Um, that may or may not mean that there is a great victory and wonderful progress. For once, though, I, I actually share some of some of Jeff's optimism and Joe's optimism on this. I, you know, leaving aside the fact that Kim Jong Un is a vicious dictator, um, you know, I think it, it it seems possible that we will actually get a better than status quo outcome. Not not necessarily likely, but actually possible for once that we'll get a better than status quo outcome in these negotiations. Uh, and, you know, from the perspective of uh, preventing global apocalypse, that would actually be a good thing. Yeah. Well, um, I'm getting a little disoriented here. Um, and it's not just because I'm in Michigan, um, although that'll do it to you every time. But the, the, uh, the, everybody's optimistic. So let me sort of drill down a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. uh, the, you know, the, the, the president has said, well, we're not going to get, you know, complete denuclearization now. Uh, and Pompeo has said that kind of thing. And of course, we're not going to get that because we are not going to get denuclearization, uh, period. Um, uh, you know, they're not going to give up all their nuclear weapons, are they? Well, that's Jeffrey's position. You may share that. I would say we don't have enough information to, to determine that. Clearly, what Kim Jong-un would like is to keep his nuclear relations and have a transformed relationship with the United States. That's completely understandable. That's what I would like if I was him. But that's what negotiations are for. You know, how much do we give him for what? How good are our negotiating skills? And remember, not just this president, but this is something that's going to stretch out over a decade. So what does the next president do? It's in the Democrats' interest, I would argue, to keep this process going, to make some substantial gains so that the next Democratic president could inherit this and, and, and apply some actual diplomatic skills, 
with a fully staffed State Department, with a real team of experts, and really see, take it all the way to, to the finish line and test the proposition whether he's going to give them up. But what you can do is it's like the Iran deal. You can roll back the program. You can cap it. You can put it under inspections. You know, you can get a lot to restrain the program, reduce the risk. And in the process, there's two sides of this, remember. The American press only wants to talk about denuclearization. That was the Bolton position. All we're talking about is how quickly Kim Jong-un is going to denuclearize. He could do it in a year. No, Pompeo said he could do it in two years. But the North Koreans have not budged on that because for the last six months, we haven't done anything on our part of the bargain, which was begin the process of normalization. So that's the part you could begin this week that you could extend out step by step and so that you could create the conditions where down the road, Kim Jong-un might in fact decide it was in his national security interest to give up that last nuke he's gotten hidden in the basement. That's, that's the process you want to see. And every step we take to towards that goal, tests the issue, and makes us a little bit safer. So, Jeff, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic here, and I sort of think, you know, the North Korean game is give up as little as possible. You know, a few sites they don't really care about or where there's some redundancy, maybe a few of the nuclear warheads they've manufactured in the intervening years since the last round of talks. Um, uh, a promise of more to come, get as much as they can, as soon as they can, um, declare victory at home, let Trump declare victory at home, let everybody feel good about things, but maintain their nuclear capability um, uh, and have their trigger, you know, 10 years down the road, be the complete denuclearization of the peninsula in their minds, which also will mean removing any U.S. nuclear-capable threats near them. Now, is that just way too skeptical? And, um, uh, 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 do, do I need to get with this optimism program that's going on here? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I think that's about right. I mean, the, the thing is, and I think it's why I'm such a weird voice on this issue, but, you know, my experience in research started with China's nuclear program. And so it's not, I don't think it's cynicism or, 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 or being, or, or thinking badly about the North Koreans. I mean, the North Koreans have the ability to target the United States with nuclear weapons. I just don't see that as a thing that North Korea wants to give up. So the examples that I think of is, you know, North Korea, it's more like maybe Kim Jong-un wants to be Mao. Right. And and so Mao's idea was he keeps his cult of personality, he keeps his nuclear weapons, but he dramatically improves relations with the United States. Right. Um, you know, the other example I often think of is there's Israel. Right. Israel has nuclear weapons. Everybody knows Israel has nuclear weapons and their solution is to say, but they promise they won't talk about them. Right. That, I think that's a deal that Kim Jong-un would go for. But, you know, when it really comes down to it, I just don't think Kim can look at the last 20 or 30 years of American policy and think giving up nuclear weapons is going to be a good idea. I don't know. Did you see Marco Rubio's tweet the other day? He actually tweeted out two pictures, one of a happy Muammar Gaddafi and one of the other of Muammar Gaddafi uh, about to be brutally murdered, sort of covered in blood. You know, like I'm, I'm old yeah, enough yeah. that I remember when so Gaddafi abandoned his... Where... Yeah, go on. Well, I'm old enough to remember when Gaddafi disarmed. 
Right. But that's exactly that's the point of the process. Kim looks at America's history with Saddam Hussein, with Muammar Gaddafi, with the Iranians, and he comes to the correct conclusion that if you give up a weapon, your weapons, America will kill you. So he's, what What can we do to change that calculation? It's going to take time. It's going to take real things. It's going to take a real change in the U.S.-North Korean relationship and the North-South relationship. And that's why I'm saying this thing is going to take about 10 years. There's no way you get to denuclearization in one year, two years, or even five years. I just think so we should learn, learn, to the, live, that- learn to love their bomb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of of the school, whether we learn to love it or not, it's going to be there. But part of this scenario, Rosa, is that, you know, Kim Jong-un becomes normalized. You know, he's become the normal, you know, world leader. We deal with him, liaison offices, lead to embassies. Trump is selling him really hard on this idea of North Korea, the economic paradise. You know, admittedly, nobody there has any experience with capitalism. There's no infrastructure. But I'm sure Trump has told them he'll build a casino on one of those beautiful North Korean beaches. And, you know, um, uh, the the opportunities are endless. But can you is it is it within the realm of possibility that Kim Jong-un is ever viewed as sort of a normal world leader? Sure. I mean, you always get to keep reinventing yourself in in, uh, foreign policy and international relations, as in the rest of life. Um, And, you know, what Kim Jong-un has going for him is is that he's young. Uh, And, you know, I don't think it's impossible that in 10 years from now, you know, if he acts like a normal leader, that he will come to be treated like a normal leader. You know, I think I think that there would continue to be pressure, even leaving aside the denuclearization issue, there obviously will continue to be enormous pressure on North Korea on human rights issues. And my guess is that if he shows even the slightest signs of liberalization and easing up uh, uh, and and on the issue of denuclearization and general aggressiveness towards neighbors and others, if he shows signs of being a rational actor, which so far he does, uh, that in 10 years he'll be treated like, you know, he won't be that different from quite a lot mm-hmm. of the other actors in the world who, you know, aren't the best, but they're plausible players on the international stage and they're not mm-hmm. pariahs. I think that could easily happen. Yeah. I mean, we treated Mao Zedong as a, a normal leader, even though he killed millions of his own citizens. And and we, quote, we treated Deng Xiaoping, his successor, as a normal leader, even though he supported some of the ins- craziest policies imaginable. But he came to the United States, he went to a rodeo, and suddenly he was everybody's favorite uh, Asian leader. So, yeah, this is possible. Well, we, we, treat, we treat Xi Jinping as a usual leader, and he's got a million Uyghurs in camps. Uh, exactly. And his recent visitor... His recent visitor, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, who went to China and said, hey, no problem throwing Muslims in camps if that's yeah. what you got to do. Yeah, he, some, he's another some, one we treat as a usual leader. Well, and, yeah. I, I, and I think that one of the things that this shows, depressingly, is that if you talk the talk uh, in international relations, you don't necessarily have to walk the walk. You know, that we're willing to let people get away with a lot if they are willing to pretend to respect international norms. Um, well, let's sort of flip this this question a little bit as we sort of kick the tires and 
prepare the listeners of Deep State Radio for what's going to happen this week. Um, obviously, there's going to be a lot of love and talk of um, Nobel Prizes and, and so forth. What's not probably going to get talked about a lot by the Trump team, uh, Joe, is the Iranian nuclear deal, mm-hmm. which inevitably is a better deal than the one they're going to end up with Korea, right? Absolutely. No question about it. And it's actually kind of the framework. It's the same model as what we're about to do with North Korea. That is, you know, it's it's you would like to completely eliminate the program. We wanted to completely eliminate the the Iranian program, but it had grown too big and we weren't willing to give the pay the price of what the Iranians would require to give the whole thing up. Same thing in North Korea. So what do you do? You start slicing it. You start taking a slice. You develop um, verification procedures, confidence building measures, so that you could be sure that what the other side is doing when they say they're going to dismantle X, that they actually do dismantle X. And so eventually this, for North Korea, this leads to you know, a, a, a full inventory, but you're not going to get that up front. Eventually it leads to kind of a roadmap, but you're not going to get that up front. Those things the kinds of maximalist demands you saw at the beginning of the process that you realized that you can't get there from here. You have to take a few steps first to see if you can do it. That's exactly what happened with Iran. If North Korean diplomacy succeeds, it's going to be inevitably compared to the uh, Iranian deal, and that is going to drive Trump crazy. Uh, well, drive Trump crazy. There's an Exacerbate the underlying mental illness. That's right. Did you see the pictures of him talking about speaking to the Chinese this morning and hope, making little glasses signs with his eyes? Oh, he no. To indicate that the Chinese <laughs> to make the. Oh. <laughs> I mean, this was, was after. It, this it, was. Just go look for these pictures because he's talking about trade talks and saying everything goes well. And he, you know, got this great deal with Xi Jinping. And then he and he says that Xi brings over his staff and and, you know, they all wear glasses like Chinese people do. And then he puts up the glasses, which is not quite as bad as when he was imitating Xi Jinping's voice in the last, you know, his accent, um, uh, which sounds, you know, horrible and racist. And this is just a day after we came up with the great idea that we should have a national celebration for July Fourth Day with fireworks and yeah. celebrations and music on the mall. What a great, what a genius! No, no, that was a great idea when John Adams had it on July third, seventeen seventy-six, um, and wrote to Abigail saying that that's what was going to happen. Um, but you know, it's two hundred and forty-three years later, um, Jeffrey. You know, I, I want to always elevate these things. Uh, and it dawns on me that you. <laughs> so why are you asking me out. a question? <laughs> well, that's why I'm asking. Because it sounds to me like you rushed to get your book out before peace broke out. Because who is going to buy your book about the 2020 commission if America loves North Korea and Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un get the Nobel Prize? That's so okay. Do we still that? like alternative histories. Rema- yeah, oh, it's, 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 it's a. It's an enormous problem. Um, You know, I mean, in a way, I'm actually quite uh, look. I mean, there's no point in selling a book if you're just going to, like, have the royalties in your bomb shelter. So, (laughs) like, the fact that we kind of moved away from the tension of 2017 is a thing that I'm 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 just generally happy about. But I would say, you know, in the draft of the book, there was a diplomatic negotiation that failed. 
right? So there was this process of a summit meeting. And, you know, in the book, what happens is that the president decides to take the Bolton line that like actual nuclear weapons need to be given up. You know, I, I didn't anticipate the love letters and the, you know, all of that stuff, which if, if I had, no one would have believed it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually do think that there is still a non-trivial risk that the North Koreans are going to get to the point where they're not getting what they've asked for. You know, um, you know, I, I, people, if, if Bolton prevails upon the president not to let begin make the kinds of compromises that we've seen floated, right? So the North Koreans come out of this with no sanctions relief, uh, no kind of opening of relations, whether it's a liaison office or something else, uh, no end of the war declaration. You know, it's not clear to me that this moratorium can last last forever. You know, we had a moratorium mm-hmm. like this under after the agreed framework, right? The the North Koreans did a, a missile launch and uh, a rocket launch in 1998, and then they agreed to a moratorium. That moratorium was they officially kind of gave up on it in 2003. There, so they were pretty patient. You know, they waited kind of a year uh, after that after the agreed framework collapsed, and then they didn't launch anything until 2006, right? And then that's the year where things went a little, a little crazy. So, you know, look, I'm happy to get to, you know, live a little longer, uh, maybe, maybe get to see, maybe get to see another Olympics or so. Um, but, but at the end of the day, if there's no concrete deliverable for the North Koreans, um, you know, I think you could find yourself in a situation that the book describes, uh, and I'm pretty happy that it exists because that's what we want to avoid. <laughs> well, I, Okay. Um, people can still buy your book uh, available uh, in all uh, bookstores. Um, uh, but uh, Rosa, let me take it a, a step further because Jeff has has talked about Bolton a few times in this. Bolton sort of leads a faction in the government that doesn't really want to see this happen and has been planning uh, uh, one thinks these stories about Began, uh, who's a very well-respected guy, I think. Um, uh Put yourself, I hate to do this to you, but put yourself in the mind of John Bolton. Um, hold, hold two fingers under your nose to be the mustache. And then tell me, you know, how does somebody undo whatever is going to happen in these next couple of days if you're the National Security Advisor of the United States? It doesn't matter, David, because John Bolton's going to be happy anyway. John Bolton is sitting there thinking to himself, well, gee whiz, I may be disappointed on North Korea. We might not be able to have a war with North Korea, but there's always Venezuela. Uh, I think that's what he's got his eye on. He's transferred his loyalty to the possibility (laughs) of war in Venezuela. Uh, We saw a few weeks ago he was he was cheerfully displaying a legal pad uh, (laughs) with proposed troop presence uh, nearby to get everybody ready. Um, You know, that was complete bullshit, right? Well, he wrote that pad to have somebody take the picture. It was wishful. It may have been. It may have been deliberate. It may have been accidental. It may have been wishful thinking. Either way, um, but I think that's where he's focusing his energies. And and obviously the vice president, who seems to be our go-to guy at the moment on Venezuela, is is carefully saying all options are still on the table and carefully not ruling out the use of force in Venezuela. Um, you know, which is which is not insignificant. Uh, I think if if this were a different administration the rhetoric would be a lot more restrained. The rhetoric would be humanitarian emergency, political crisis, 
doing everything we can diplomatically to resolve this. Of course, we're not talking about going to war. Don't be silly. Uh, but the the rhetoric of uh, the Boltons and Pences of the world at the moment is, is pretty bellicose. I, I think that what we have seen so far, fortunately, over and over, is that Trump tiptoes up to the brink and then he rushes right back because he doesn't actually want to get uh, entangled in another military conflict. Um, so John Bolton may be destined to be disappointed, but I think at the moment that, that's, that's, what he's, that's where his hopes rest, is Venezuela. Mm-hmm. And that would be a lot of Mike Pence running a, a you know, foreign policy for the United States. That's really disturbing. Uh, you know, we've sent him down to Colombia, and uh, that's that's a that's a that's a that's something I don't I don't know that anybody uh, counted on. Uh, Joe, you know, one of the uh, things that you know Trump did in the run-up to all of this was to say how much better he was than all the past presidents, and that if Obama had stayed in <laughs> office, there would have been a war. And I was just wondering whether you wanted to offer a comment on that. Perhaps I should have asked Rosa. Rosa, were you secretly planning at the Pentagon a war against North Korea that we're unaware of? (laughs) I I was secretly planning a war against several extremely irritating people at the White House. But that was it. That was as close as I got to war planning. (laughs) Well, let me let me say the the Obama. Sounds like the Obama administration. Yeah, go on. But the, the Obama administration failed to solve this problem, and I believe they had chances to solve it, but they failed because of timidity um, and, and not prioritizing it and thinking that they could kick the nuclear can down the road to the next administration. Everything would, would turn out fine. Those are errors of judgment. Those are errors of, of missed opportunity, but they're not errors of, of belligerency. And, and I believe, and I've talked to several of them, the, the former Obama administration officials who say there was never a consideration of a military strike on, uh, on North Korea. And there was a little bit of t- discussion of that back in 94 in the Clinton administration, Bob Gallucci and, and I think Bob Einhorn talk about this, how there was an, an option to strike at Yongbyon, um, which is where they, they, they had some fuel rods, not yet plutonium extracted from them, and they thought they was talking about bombing them, but nothing like that in the Obama administration because they knew what would happen next. You know, even if in a conventional war, uh, hundreds of thousands of South Koreans would be killed in the first few hours. And if you, uh, Jeffrey's book, which by the way, is excellent. It's a hell of a read. I can't tell you how many people I know who have picked this up and not put it down until they read to the last page. Uh, you see what happens with a nuclear exchange of even a a handful of missiles. And we're talking about millions of people dying in the most horrible way imaginable. So that is such a deterrent that, that no, I don't believe Obama ever considered that. I don't believe Hillary Clinton would have done that. It's a complete fantasy on uh, Trump's part. Um, You know, it reminds me, I remember talking to Bob Gallucci about this. Uh, who was our nuclear negotiator back then. And Bob Gallucci um, told me about uh, uh, one night he was sitting at home and his phone rang and it was the State Department operator. And he'd never gotten a call that way. And, and, and the operator said, the secretary is up for you on the line. And Gallucci said he was sitting in his living room. And uh, uh, immediately he was like, I don't didn't know what to do. I, you know, so he stand up. What should I do? And <laughs> what's going on? And why is he? Why is he? Why is he calling me? And uh, 
and uh, uh, the uh, uh, you know Warren Christopher, who's the Secretary of State, comes on the line and says, "Bob, I bet I know what you're doing right now." And Gallucci's like, "What? What am I doing, sir?" And 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 Gallucci goes, uh, and 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 Christopher goes. Well, I bet you're watching television. And Gallucci immediately concludes that war has broken out in oh. in, in uh, North in the Koreas. And and Christopher goes, um, and and Gallucci said, "What what if what would I be seeing, and uh, uh, what would I be watching?" And and Christopher goes, "Well, O.J. Simpson is in this white Ford Bronco." Built <laughs> 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 slowly down. The, the highway. And, and I, I once had a conversation with David Sanger, our, 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 our friend on this show. And Sanger was in covering North Korea and, and Japan for the New York Times. And Jimmy Carter had just gone to visit the North Koreans or something to try to solve this. And the Japanese foreign minister did a press conference. And after the press conference, uh, uh, Sanger grabbed him in, in, the, in the hall, and, and the Japanese foreign minister said, "It's unbelievable." And 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 Sanger was like, "Yeah, no, I don't think the Clinton administration wanted Carter to go there at all." And this Japanese foreign minister said, "No, O.J. Simpson is in a white Ford Bronco driving down the highway." And so this was this was, we were at the brink of war, but everybody was z- zeroed in on on focusing on. Uh, on O.J. Simpson and the Whiteboard Bronco. There is a final portion of that story, I'm afraid. <laughs> and the final portion of the story is Tony Lake, the national security advisor, who was my partner in the business, told me later that he had been meeting with Clinton and that, you know, a, a short a, before this, perhaps six months before this, and uh, they had been playing golf uh, or they were at a golf club, I guess. And he had been briefing Clinton and then he left and he went to get on an airplane back to the U S and his, his pager went off and it said, come back to see the president. So he turned his car around, going to go to the airport, went back down to the airport, uh, and, and found Clinton in the locker room. And Clinton said, you know, we were talking about North Korea and Tony's like, yeah. And he said, well, one of the people I'm playing golf with, uh, has some views on North Korea that he'd like to share with you. And, and, and Tony goes, great. And he says, have you met OJ Simpson? Oh no. And Clinton was no. playing golf with OJ Simpson and OJ Simpson then went on to say, well, you know, North Korea has a million man army and we shouldn't blah, blah, blah. And it was, you, you don't see a lot of those pictures of Clinton and OJ playing golf anymore. But so, sorry to get off track. But I just, airbrushed, airbrushed from history. Of, I'm googling them as we speak. Yeah. <laughs> oh no! Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, you want to, you want to, you want to look, look out for those, um, Jeff. As we sort of get towards wrapping up here, what is what would be like a big win for Kim Jong Un? Like what would, you know, what, what, what does he want out of this? What's in his mind? I mean, this, this is the big win. I mean, this is a big win. I, Kim has completed the development of a nuclear arsenal. You know, if you're, if you're a political scientist, 
the in theory the period between like the first test of an ICBM and then like building up like a little arsenal this is supposed to be like the most dangerous part for a country right because they have like a theoretical capability to strike but they don't have like a proper arsenal this should be the moment of maximum danger for him and and in fact it's worked out the other way so he's able to continue increasing the number of nuclear weapons that he has while finding the international environment is just much more positive. You know, I, 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 I think he's he's got a, a South Korean partner that just really wants to make this relationship work. Um, you know, the Chinese seem to be terrified that they're going to be left behind out of all this. And, and he's got an American president who's just willing to meet with him. I mean, I think if you are Kim Jong-un, like these are your salad days because mm-hmm. you're not really having to make any tough choices. Um, and so, you know, I, I think this is great for him. And, and then just the question is, you know, what does he want going forward? And then, and does he get that? Um, or, or, or do they start to lose, lose patience? Wow. So everybody out there, the tens of thousands of people who tune in regularly to deep state radio, I want you to take your chairs. I want you to sit down. I want you to be in a soft space. As I turned here to Rosa and say, Rosa, this looks to me like we could be on the verge of a Trump diplomatic victory of some material value to the United States. It could happen. It could happen. You know, every now and then he's, he's going to do something right, even by accident. Uh, you know, and, and, and I think there have been a handful of other good Trump moves uh, uh, on the domestic side, for instance, the, the, uh, his support for the First Step Act is a, you know, quite significant uh, criminal justice reform, for instance. So it's not impossible that he will end up doing something good. You know, he stumbles around, uh, he says all kinds of things, including quite a lot of completely evil things. But, but you know, if he, if he can pull this off, uh, I think we should all cheer. Yeah. C- can I weigh in on this? Yes. Okay. Thank you. I will. So I wrote an article in Defense One today that <laughs> talks about this, this exact problem, that this presents a, a, a case of severe cognitive dissonance for Democrats. If, uh, if, if someone you detest does something good, what do you do? What do you do? How do you resolve this? And, and so and there were there are three ways I think this this whole thing can unravel. We've already talked about the first one, which is it could be derailed by Trump's or Kim's instability. The other, and I think you're going to hear this, and Jeffrey was hinting at it, is that some of the non-proliferation hawks will um, will d- dismiss anything like. Uh, the young beyond concession as as meaningless. You know, these are people who are, who, who are like the the nonproliferation. I call them nonproliferation dominance, and they want everyone to be their submissive. And you have to completely give up, or, or and and or, or it's no it's no good at all. They're the high sparrow, and you have to kneel before them. Okay, but the third way is if Democrats torpedo this. And you've already seen some evidence of this. People writing uh, uh, to criticize, try to get to the right of Trump on this, try to diminish his, his prospects. But it, it, it just yesterday, however, a group of eight senators, including the, the chair of the 
the ranking Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and Chuck Schumer wrote a pretty balanced letter, critical of Trump, but basically supporting diplomacy, support looking for good outcomes, supporting uh, South Korea in this. And if that kind of voice can prevail, if the Democrats can can solve their cognitive dissonance and understand that they are going to inherit this problem in two years, and they would much rather have an ongoing negotiation process than one that ends up where Trump, where Jeffrey's book uh, ends up a sh- you know shattered confidence, shattered credibility, no negotiation, smoldering tensions, and in a situation where some spark could set off a, a, a catastrophe. I'm going to be watching the Democrats to see how they respond to this. What could be a Trump's biggest and probably only foreign policy victory? Interesting. And Jeff, are you going to be working on Caracas Crisis 2022? <laughs> no! <laughs> there must be an interplay here. <laughs> just do a whole series of them. You know, I mean, one thing that Joe said that I think is really important as it relates to the Democrats that I really worry about is let's imagine that this process with, with Trump and Kim plays out kind of the way it has been, which is to say... A lot of gestures, but not much actual progress, you know, um, and and then Trump doesn't get reelected and you get a Democratic president. Well, what happens then? Because I think what you're going to see is Republicans will start attacking de- the Democratic president on the grounds that Trump had this problem fixed. Right. And now every time there is some leak from the intelligence community, instead of dismissing it as the deep state trying to undermine Trump, you know, they'll revert to their kind of 1990s ways against Clinton, where every leak will prove that, you know, Kim has now double crossed the weak Democratic president. And, you know, he's not as strong as Trump and he can't fix it the way Trump does. And I I actually really worry that uh, the wrong Democratic president, and I don't think Obama would have done this, but I think. You know, we saw how timid he was. I think the wrong Democratic president, you know, a lot of the themes in my book, I'll say it this way, uh, of presidents making bad decisions and stumbling into crisis, that could happen to a Democrat. It nearly happened to Bill Clinton. Wow. Well, there you are, folks. Typical episode of Deep State Radio. Trump has a foreign policy victory. Obama was weak. The Democrats may sidetrack, blow the whole thing up. Um, I, I thank you, Jeff, for adding the fact that the Republicans will revert to form during the early years of the Kamala Harris administration. Um, and in fact, um, uh, and, and, and in fact, uh, I, I think you know my my guess for what it's worth as, as we wrap Warris, as we wrap up here is is that you know this is going to be one of those deals that is going to look its very best the day it's brought home from the showroom, you know, and that, uh, you know, it's, it's like, you know, buying a boat. It seems like a great idea the day you buy it. Um, but the more, you know, about owning a boat, the less idea, you know, good the idea is. Uh, and, and of course, you know, the old saying is the two best days in a boat owner's life are the day he buys it and the day he sells it. But in this particular case, what's going to likely happen is, the devil's going to be in the details of implementation. And of course, both sides have got to honor any agreement that takes place. And that's going to take place over a long period of time. And as our guests have pointed out, 
the leadership of the United States may flip once or twice or three times, and both parties are going to find themselves strongly tempted to be critical of one another uh, for this agreement. But for the moment, there's a little bit of optimism, and we don't have that too often. So we're going to we're going to zero in on that, and I'm going to thank Rosa and Joe and Jeff for joining us. I'm going to encourage everybody to go out there and to get um, Jeffrey's book while it is still. Uh, as scary as it can be, um, you know, by the end of the week, it might might appear to be less scary. Um, so so order it right now as soon as you get off the phone. Also go to deepstateradionetwork.com and become a member of, of Deep State Radio so you can get this and Washington for Beautiful People and our National Security Magazine uh, podcast and the new podcast we've got coming out and some new content. Um, you know, you might as well um, uh, spend a little money in joining Deep State Radio while you're spending a lot of money buying Jeff's book. Um, uh, several copies for your friends. Uh, and we'll be back again soon. In fact, we'll do our next episode, not right now as we often do, but we'll do it later in the week so that we can report on what has happened on this trip, what's happened in Venezuela, and maybe what has happened on all those other things we usually talk about uh, that, that, that Trump's got going on back here at home. Thank you very much. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.